everyone, I'm Leah, and welcome to Machiavelli's Prince. There's a podcast all about Niccolò Machiavelli's book, The Prince. Last episode, we covered chapters 7 through 9, and this week, we are going to go over chapters 10 through 13. If you haven't listened to the past episodes, go on back and give them a listen. Also, remember to keep in mind that we are students of Machiavelli for the duration of this podcast, and that although the student does not always have to agree with the teacher, we ought to respect him. Chapter 10. Concerning the way in which the strength of all principalities ought to be measured. Machiavelli starts by comparing whether or not the prince needs someone's support to maintain the principality. He says, To make this quite clear, I say that I consider those who are able to support themselves by their own resources, who can, either by abundance of men or money, raise a sufficient army to join battle against anyone who comes to attack them. And I consider those always to have need of others who cannot show themselves against the enemy in the field, but are forced to defend themselves by sheltering behind walls. It seems like it would be preferred to be able to fashion a large army from within. However, if it's impossible, then focusing on fortifying cities and getting the people on your side, as discussed in the last chapter, will make people less likely to attack you. He says, Therefore, a prince who has a strong city and had not made himself odious will not be attacked, or if anyone should attack, he will only be driven off with disgrace. Again, because that the affairs of this world are so changeable, it is almost impossible to keep an army a whole year in the field without being interfered with. He brings up the point that when the unprotected parts outside the city are burned, they are likely to be patient with the prince. Machiavelli suggests that the prince convinces the people the destruction won't be for long. It's about instilling hope. The prince would want to foster that so long as it wasn't against himself. I'll go back to the episode I said in a previous episode about the toddler being left in a room alone. Even if the conquerors leave, the damage has been done. The prince has to act quickly in the situation and be considerate and productive after the losses. Remember, Machiavelli believes it's important to have the people on your side. Chapter 11, Conquering Ecclesiastical Principalities. This principality leans into the power of religion, particularly the papacy. Religion soared during the Renaissance, albeit in a different, more philosophy-driven way. If a prince had the Roman papacy on his side, he inherently had a powerful figurehead for political pull. In the context of religious principalities, they have one advantage that other principalities do not have, religious ordinances. They have ancient symbols and beliefs backing them. However, like every other principality, it has its pros and cons. Machiavelli writes, These princes alone have states and do not defend them. They have subjects and do not rule them. And the states, although unguarded, are not taken from them and their subjects. Although not ruled, do not care, and they have neither the desire nor the ability to alienate themselves, such principalities only are secure and happy, but being upheld by powers to which the human mind cannot reach, I shall speak no more of them, because being exalted and maintained by God, it would be the act of presumptuous and rash man to discuss them. Papacy can be an incredible force in politics, but only as long as the people has his army and holds significance. Throughout the early 1400s into the Renaissance, the Pope's support can make the difference if a government in Italy wins over another region or not. Remember, Italy was not united at this time. 
It's also something to say that the papacy was not inherited as other princedoms often were. When the pope dies, the next one is re-elected. He goes into detail with example explaining the things he introduced regarding the papacy but kept it surprisingly vague and short. This could be the nature of the time. It would have been dangerous to talk negatively about the church, which would limit how critical he could be toward it. It is also a position that can only be attained a handful of ways, so it limits the directions he can take this principality. Many of the Renaissance paintings you'll see in buildings are called frescoes, the process done by painting the plaster while it is still wet. When the plaster dries, the paint is sucked up into it, preserving it for longer than if it had just been painted on the surface. Chapter 12. How many kinds of soldiery there are and concerning mercenaries. To me, this feels like the beginning of a new section of the book. He reviews what he went over in the previous chapters and says that it's time to move on to what methods of offense and defense each have. He says, We have seen above how necessary it is for a prince to have his foundations well laid. Otherwise, it follows of necessity he will go to ruin. The chief foundations of all states, new as well as older composite, are good laws and good arms. And as there cannot be good laws where the state is not well armed, it follows that where they are well armed, they have good laws. I shall leave the laws out of the discussion and speak of the arms. The kinds of arms he lists are his own mercenaries, auxiliaries, or mixed. He doesn't think mercenaries and auxiliaries are good. He straight up says they are useless and dangerous and then if you base your principality off them, you aren't firm nor safe. He says of mercenaries, they are disunited, ambitious and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies, they have neither the fear of God nor fidelity of men, and destruction is deferred only so long as the attack is, for in peace one is robbed by them, and war by the enemy. He says they are unreliable because they are only in it for the money. You can't make someone die for you just for money. They can be a visual source of power, but they are likely to run when faced with real danger. What's the point in making money if we're just going to die before you can spend it? Machiavelli continues by saying, I wish to demonstrate further the infelicity of these arms. The mercenary captains are either capable men, or they are not. If they are, you cannot trust them, because they always aspire to their own greatness, either by oppressing you, who are their master, or others contrary to your intentions. But if the captain is not skillful, you are ruined in the usual way. The first part reminds me of his argument for currying favor to the nobles. They are likely to take care of themselves and show limited loyalty. He recommends, once again, that the prince go there himself and be his own captain. He says that inherently being armed can defend the country. Think about it. If you're well defended, who would want to attack you? Switzerland is a good example of this. Notice how, despite being in the middle of the European continent, it managed to keep its nose clean in World War I and World War II. It was well armed, geographically protected, and therefore left alone. Machiavelli says that if you have a strong armed people, then they will be safer. Chapter 13, concerning auxiliaries, mixed soldiery, and one's own. Auxiliaries are defined as something common in to aid or defend. In this case, asking another country for military help. Machiavelli says, These arms may be useful and good in themselves, but for him who calls them in, 
they are always disadvantageous. For losing, one is undone, and winning, one is their captive. He makes the argument that auxiliaries are good as long as you don't want to conquer. Since they are obedient to another force, they would be static in combat situations. At least with mercenaries, their loyalty lies to the safest and best paying. With auxiliaries, their loyalty is inherently given to someone else. You don't want to rely too much on favors. He says, In mercenaries, dastardy is most dangerous. In auxiliaries, valor. A prince, therefore, has always avoided these arms and turned to his own, and has been willing rather to lose with them than to conquer with others, not deeming that a real victory which is gained with the arms of others. If you get a piece of land with someone else's forces, how could you expect to hold it? If those forces go away, the people you conquered have no reason to fear you and could just come take it back. Machiavelli cites several examples, but my favorite of his is David and Goliath. Machiavelli writes, I wish also to recall to memory an instance from the Old Testament applicable to this subject. David offered him to Saul to fight with Goliath, the Philistine champion, and to give him courage, Saul armed him with his own weapons, which David rejected as soon as he had them on his back, saying he could make no use of them, and that he wished to meet the enemy with his sling and his knife. In conclusion, the arms of others either fall from your back or they weigh you down, or they bind you fast. I just thought that example was simple and interesting to use for this because you wouldn't look at the story and say David was a prince. However, he still displayed princely valor in using his own means to get to an end. Through these explanations, Machiavelli reiterates how important it is that a prince should have his own forces. He argues that mercenaries and auxiliaries rely too much on fortune, which we already know he advocates against. I'll end this episode with a final quote. It has always been the opinion and judgment of wise men that nothing can be so uncertain or unstable as fame or power not founded on its own strength. This has been episode 6 of Machiavelli's Princes. Watch for future episodes as we dig into Machiavelli's philosophy on princehood and how it affected Renaissance and modern philosophy on ruling. In the next episode, we will be discussing chapters 14 through 17. Adventure on! Mm-hmm.